Thank you for downloading this podcast presented by the University of Oxford's African Studies Center. This year's annual African Studies lecture features two scholars, Professors Achille Mbembe and Sarah Nuttall, both of the Stellenbosch University in South Africa. The following presentation is from Professor Sarah Nuttall and is entitled City, Art, Motion, Thinking the Now for Johannesburg. I think between the High Commission in Cape Town and the Ash Cloud, you know, I would have had a far better lecture if I had more time to write it. Um, I, the last few days have been really up and down, and I'm, I'm, thrilled, I'm thrilled to be here, and I will um, certainly do my best. I'm going to say some things today that will, um, some of you will strongly disagree with, I anticipate. Um, but I, I want to uh, put together a set of remarks that will try to reflect with you, in a sense, um, some of the problems I'm having uh, in the work that I'm doing. Um, and so I hope that's okay. A lot of, a lot of the, the issues that arise when you work on the history of the present, as I do, are, um, you know, sort of, so, sort of conundrums that, that, um, that don't really have answers yet. And I think that the, 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 the trick is to try to formulate the, the questions. Um, so... You know, thank you to Dave and thank you to, to, to all of you. Um, I want to try to spend my time today reflecting on a set of issues which I think are arising in global debates at the end of the first decade of the 21st century, which I happen to think is a time of considerable ferment and change, um, and which do have ramifications for African studies across different disciplines, I think. And the issues I want to talk about uh, really have everything to do with the ways in which we read now. Um, and the degree to which the kind of emerging global order we inhabit might require us to develop ways of deciphering the world that build on, but also depart from, those modes that we've relied on since about the 1980s. Now, this talk has four sections, and the first one is called Symptoms of Unhappiness. The second one is called The Rediscovery of the Surface. After that, Reading the Surface in African Writing and Thought. And the final one is called Scenes, Surfaces and Tableau, which is a discussion of art platforms in Johannesburg. And that's where I really start to speculate about material that I haven't yet decided about um, fully. And I'll signal these sections to you as I go along. So the first one is Symptoms of Unhappiness. At its broadest, the problematic I want to try to wrestle with today has everything to do with the project of Western modernity itself. The philosophical discourse of Western modernity, one could say, or at least for the purposes of my argument, has been deeply invested in elucidating the conditions under which modern beings could experience happiness. The fundamental question of modernity in various disciplines of the humanities is not simply that of the conditions under which we could be free and autonomous subjects. It is also an interrogation about the reasons for our state of unhappiness. So within this problematic, Hegel, for instance, argues that we are unhappy because we've forgotten our divine nature. For Marx, unhappiness was produced by a class and power structure that manufactured poverty, exploitation, and alienation for many. And for Freud, of course, Unhappiness resulted from the fact that something hidden in the unconscious made us act in spite of ourselves in often concealed and self-destructive ways. 
Now, reading, obviously, was part of this project of modernity. The project of reading was to attend to the split between the two realms of life modernity had so forcefully driven apart. The realms of appearances on the one hand and the domains of the real on the other. This split was not only reproduced in the self and ratified by various power mechanisms, it also governed the relations between self and object and self and nature. The aim of reading the world was to unmask the forms and the forces that prevented us from becoming one, once again, autonomous subjects free of self-division. It was hoped that in tearing away the veil of ideologies, illusions, and mystifications, the human subject would be able to heal the rift which separated her from what she thought she was, and to close the gap between what she lived and experienced and the way that she thought. And the assumption was that these forms, forces or mechanisms were not always self-evident. Reading, that other name for critique, had to go well beyond the surface. The method of reading that enabled a long conversation to happen across many disciplines <coughs> since the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s, was the form of symptomatic reading. The critical meta-languages -language, that were central to the project were psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis and Marxism. And one of the most formative texts in the way in which we've read for the last 30 years was Frederick Jameson's The Political Unconscious, published in 1981. If everything were transparent, then no ideology would be possible, and no domination either, wrote Jameson then, explaining why interpretation could never operate on the assumption that, quote, the text means just what it says. Now, in the logic of the political unconscious that we have relied on in one way or another for much of our theorizing, for three decades, the most interesting aspect of a text is that which it represses. So interpretation should seek a latent meaning behind a manifest one. The interpreter, Jameson wrote, writes the surface categories of a text in the stronger language of a more fundamental interpretative code and reveals truth that, quote, remain unrealized in the surface of the text. By disclosing the absent cause, the structures, the text's inclusions and exclusions, the critic restores to the surface of the text the deep history that the text represses. What is deep is fully present, and thus theoretically retrievable. But it is positioned so far down, and is so completely covered by an opaque surface, that it can only be detected by an extreme degree of penetration or insight. The surface is associated with the superficial and the deceptive. And what can be perceived without close examination and implicitly would turn out to be false under closer scrutiny. The notion underlying all forms of symptomatic reading, that the most significant truths are not immediately apprehensible and may be veiled or invisible, has a very long history. Symptomatic reading has links to what Umberto Eco calls the, the hermeneutic theory of interpretation, the idea that words 
hide the untold, and the secret of meaning is its impossibility. Freud's model of interpretation was particularly suited to symbolic language, which he defined as any form of language where another meaning is both given and hidden in an immediate meaning. And Ricoeur defined the symbolic function as to mean something other than in what is said. Of course, for Althusser, symptomatic reading makes lacunae perceptible. It assumes that texts are shaped by questions they do not themselves pose and contain symptoms that help interpreters articulate those questions which lie outside the text as their absent causes. And as Stephen Best and Sharon Marcus have recently put it in a special issue of interpretation, of representation, we were trained in symptomatic reading, became attached to the power it gave to the act of interpreting, and find it hard to let go of the belief that texts and their readers have an unconscious. Part two, the rediscovery of the surface. But if the underneath and the symptom have been such potent signifiers for who we think we are, and for producing the parameters of cultural politics for several decades, some writers, artists, and those involved in the work of critical theory are beginning to grapple with the need now to think anew about the surface as a place from which to read, to read power, personhood, and contemporary culture. There are various reasons that explain the rediscovery of the surface, not simply as a frame or a template for reading, not simply as a discrete object that is secondary or derivative of some originary matrix or historical process against which it should be defined, but as a fundamentally generative force capable of producing effects of its own. The first is in line with what the likes of Foucault and Deleuze have taught us, that power works differently these days, not so much along a vertical axis as through a capillary rhizomatic logic punctured by lines of flight. A crucial dimension of contemporary experience of power is power's fragmentation and dispersion. The second, following Guy Debord, is the transfiguration of the commodity into capital image and spectacle. And the third, a consequence of the second, is what can be taken as the visual or the pictorial turn in culture. <coughs> the production of arguments and information is no longer done via traditional forms of the literary. In fact, traditional forms of the literary are being in part displaced and demoted by a culture of the screen, some would argue, which may be cinematic, video, or computer-based. A sweeping reorganization of the culture of the visual is ushered in by the emergence of new technological forms of projection, display, and recording. As Ashina Mbembe and many others, Arjuna Pajarai and their recent work are arguing, what we're witnessing is the emergence of a new general phenomenon that might be called image capitalism. Image capitalism is a form of capitalism in which the image and therefore the screen is not simply taking over the calculative functions yesterday associated with numbers, but has become a techno-phenomenological institution. The rediscovery of the surface also has to do with a different reading of late capitalism. Old and primary forms of wealth are being replaced by new ones, endowed with immaterial qualities. 
The real economy is itself more and more an appendage of the speculative bubbles sustained by a finance industry for which value itself is increasingly fictitious. And finally, the surface also draws its contemporary charge from the phenomenon of the fact and fiction dichotomy having changed fundamentally. Facts are turned into fiction, fiction is turned into fact. The surface is the symptom, and the symptom is in the surface. In this context of the rise of the surface, the hermeneutics of suspicion may not be getting us as far as it was once able to. It is not that we should abandon suspicion and its possibilities altogether, not at all. States still have wounds and secrets, and so do people, and so do cultures. And yet it seems that we must increasingly read both down and across, underneath and surface, and that the surface might require a new kind of critical attention from those of us who work with theory in whatever places of the world we work. Stephen Best and Sharon Marcus may overstate it somewhat, but they put it like this. Those of us who cut our intellectual teeth on deconstruction, ideological critique, and the hermeneutics of suspicion have often found those demystify, uh, demystifying protocols superfluous in an era when images of torture at Abu Ghraib and elsewhere were immediately circulated on the internet. The real-time coverage of Hurricane Katrina showed in ways that required little explication from the critic the state's abandonment of its African-American citizens. And many people instantly recognized as lies political statements such as mission accomplished. Jameson's statement in 1981 now seems to be clearly wrong, or at least wrong in 2011. If everything were transparent, then no ideology would be possible and no domination either. Interpretation could never operate on the assumption that the text means just what it says. In struggling with these issues of death and deathlessness in my own work, which focuses on cultural forms in South Africa, I've tried to look at what a number of literary critics and anthropologists in particular are thinking about in relation to the configurations of the surface in the contemporary cultural world. In his study of rumor in the archive, Stephen Best reads first-person testimony by Caribbean slaves who believed that the British monarch had saved them, viewing their words neither as evidence irredeemably corrupted by the sovereign power that extracted them, nor as verbatim speech through which we can recover subjects lost to history. Those words are exactly what they appear to be, impossible speech, that oscillates between loyalty and insurgency, speech and paraphrase, fact and prophecy, confession and coercion, and in that sense reflects back to, reflects back to us the deeply felt uncertainty of the enslaved. Attention to the rumors on the surface of the archive challenges our conception of the latter as a repository of latent voices and hidden transcripts and requires that we reconsider whether the story of slavery can ever be narrated from below if our aim is to register what is inaccessible in the voice of the enslaved. Similarly, Benjamin Kahan argues that rather than interpret celibacy as a repressed homosexuality, we adopt a deathless hermeneutic that would take celibacy as the absence of sex that it is. And Anne Stoller, in Along the Archival Grain, looks at imperial violence that was never hidden, 
and attends to the colonial state's interests in family life as a genuine preoccupation and not as a metaphor for something else. These understandings of what one can learn from surfaces resonate with a rarely cited statement for Comey about his relationship to archives. Rather than dig for, quote, relations that are secret, hidden, and more silent or deeper than consciousness, he describes himself as, quote, seeking to define the relations on the very surface of discourse and to make visible what is invisible only because it's too much on the surface of things. Might it be true that Jamisonian forms of reading, for all their strengths and possibilities, take a certain kind of self-conscious, psychoanalytically driven genre for granted and limit themselves to overly restrictive canons? And could we think with certain kinds of literature that do not need to be decoded to be understood, or not in the way that Jameson suggests? And some might be better understood if placed, as Margaret Cohen has suggested, in a wider archive that includes non-literary types of writing with which they have elements in common. Where Jameson presents his method as having the power to disclose the text's hidden depths, Cohen suggests that placing a text in its discursive contexts can illuminate textual features that are obvious, but which critics have overlooked. And Anne Cheng suggests we replace suspicion and critical mastery with a susceptibility which could undo the alterity of subject and object. <coughs> Cheng sees a hermeneutics of suspicion as allied with the politics of identity, since what often motivates the reading of the surface as a symptom of hidden depths is the desire to restore and make visible an authenticity now veiled by spectacle. <coughs> in some of this work emerging from literary theory, one almost recalls shades of Susan Sontag in 1966 in her polemic against interpretation. Show what the work is, even that it is, rather than show what it means. But I want to go in a different direction. This is section three, reading the surface in African writing and thought. Something I richly inherit, but also resist for reasons I will explain, is the degree to which dominant readings of the political cultural in South Africa in the 1980s and 1990s have relied on the kinds of formations of symptomatic reading I've discussed above. We could think of just two examples here. In William Kendridge's 1991 film for projection called Mine, Soho Eckstein, business entrepreneur and mining magnet, prepares his morning coffee by pushing down the plunger in his coffee pot. Instead of halting at the bottom of the, of the pot, the plunger bores through the table, the floor and the ground below, into the stopes, the mining stopes underneath, the world of miners digging for gold in claustrophobic tunnels, the worlds of mine owner and mine workers of megalomania and dispossession are instantly drawn together in laying out a narrative terrain for figuring the city. The coffee pot, a found object in Kentridge's studio that morning, is incorporated into his visual vocabulary, becoming both mind shaft and psychic plunge into the invisible and repressed world of the underneath. Well before Kentridge produced this striking image, Nadine Gordimer in her 1974 novel, The Conservationist, 
took as her central motif the body of the dead black man, buried just beneath the surface of the earth. Mehring, the protagonist, is a mining engineer who owns a farm, of course. On that farm, police have hastily buried the corpse of a black stranger, probably a murder victim. The body increasingly inhabits the surfaces of Mehring's consciousness, allegorizing the idea of a return of the repressed and reasserting the claim of black people to the land of their birth. During a storm that comes in from Mozambique, the body floats to the Earth's surface, covered by only the thinnest skein of soil, and drives Mehring in terror and crisis from the farm. Gordimer's solution to the problem of the surface, as David Bunn has written, is to, create it, to treat it as a meniscus, a tense field of pressure against which bodies strain. Both Gordimer and Kentridge work along a continuum, moving between metaphors of descent into the earth and the idea of death as having risen to just below the surface. <coughs> Both Kentridge and Gordimer's aim here is to frame the symptom. In these accounts, apartheid is the symptom, or is it the symptom and the surface simultaneously? It is both hidden and yet so obvious. It exhibits a double face. Its effects are both blatantly visible and hidden. And Kentridge and Gordimer both rely, to quite an extent, on European-based epistemologies of power, interpretation, and reading. I want to remark here in partial parenthesis on the degree to which large bodies of literature by both young black South Africans and some white South Africans pass almost entirely unremarked and unnoticed as critics focus compulsively on the fiction of Kutsir, Gordimer, David Gilgit, and sometimes Zakes and Dahl thrown in for good measure. In this context, writers like Ivan Vladislavich, especially his Johannesburg memoir, Urban Travelogue, Portrait with Keys, stand in for the new. In many ways, though, such writers are deeply attached to the past, even as they attempt to decipher the present. Even as Vladislavich examines the surfaces of the city, its truth lies in all that is hidden, unrecoverable, and in a lens which, for all its sophistication, amounts to a nostalgic vision of the Johannesburg of his childhood. Beneath an iron cover on the water main set in the pavement, he discovers poor people's cupboards, places where people who have nowhere else to go, uh, people who have nowhere else used to keep their things. And this is what he writes. I kneel on the pavement like a man gazing down into a well with this small, impoverished, inexplicably ordered world before me. In the space beneath he finds, among other things, a brown ribbed army issue jersey, a small check blanket, two empty bottles, and a copy of Penthouse magazine. These are hidden worlds, orders of the invisible, inhabiting the underneath of the city's streets. For Vladislavich, even as he examines its surfaces, the truth of the city is to be found largely in its underneath. A literal underneath, its history, his own memory, its figures of marginality, its psychic effects, and an archaeology of words in its written texts. His is a vocabulary of cr critical uh, excavation. <coughs> But for a writer aiming to write about the present, his is also a nostalgic, hooded, and unwittingly race-based vision, I think. Vladislavich feels estranged from a city that he sees as, quote, increasingly oblivious to a conscious act of self-making. 
and tries to recover its spirit of place by conjuring up the literary spirits of Herman Charles Bosman and others. He talks almost exclusively to a wide circle of friends, and one character, Liz, who we discover is not white, seems almost like an authorial invention. And he reads the township metropolis in oddly retroactive ways. Township, he writes, is written in longhand across the printed page of the white city, in felt tip, in chalk, in gaudy heel taps of enamel. The white city is made of steel and glass illuminated from within. Or maybe it is in Kensington, the suburb in which he lives. But travel to other parts of the city, and the continent's biggest financial center is peopled with highly skilled immigrants from all over Africa, spewing printed pages from their computers, and occupying steel and glass, illuminated, no doubt, from within. Kutsia's disgrace, that great stand-in for post-apartheid in the Euro-American imagination, itself dramatizes with the full force of Kutsia's intelligence and craft and irony, and some measure, too, I think, of self-disgust, the problem of anachronism itself, though critics rarely comment on it. Kutsia, in a sense, takes flight from this, his last South African novel, and emigrates to Australia. But contrary to these grand, widely circulating, and at times airless South African examples, and of course at the end of my talk I'll, talk to, I'll turn to other examples of the work of young artists who suggest very different forms of reading and thinking to us. A reckoning with surfaces is also present in variants of, of African contemporary post-nationalist and post-Marxist thought. This is particularly the case in works that are preoccupied with the relationship between forms of power and forms of culture. One reason why Achille and Bembe's On the Post-Colony was such a striking book, to me at least, is that the project was not to unmask or unearth something that might be located deeper in the real. The real itself in that book encompassed the material, the symbolic, and the imaginary. <coughs> it was, rather, to take very seriously the hard surfaces of power and its interlocking topo topologies. What it says, the way it speaks and acts in public, how it dresses up, what it actually does with itself, its own body, and that of its subjects, its corporeality and its prosaics. I think that for Achille in that book, it was less a matter of demystification, or even translation, than of recognition. Because for him, power in the post-colony does not hide at all. It wears, it wears neither a mask nor a veil. It aims to manifest itself in its facticity. Nor is it interested for the purposes of its legitimation in establishing a privileged moment of origin or concerned with tracing a single dominant genealogical thread. Rather, it moves in shifts and curves and disruptions, reversals and repetitions. To account for its movements, there is no need to privilege its underneath precisely because it does not have one. Rather, one needs to trace its paths in a series of scenes or tableau, paths that configure an interlocking topology that partakes both of the real and the fictional. And it's significant to me that Mbembe in his reading relies heavily on narrative structures first experimented <coughs> with in the Francophone postcolonial novel, particularly those of Sonny Labutansi. If you look at those novels, they are novels of surfaces. They depict a universe in which the text is not an object so much 
but a force that constitutes social reality through its aesthetic structures. Different things happen at the same time, and breaks in continuity are the rule rather than the exception. Stories break off into many complicated paths, running like liquid across a surface. Okay, so surface reading, to many, perhaps even most intellectuals, can seem like an endorsement of the status quo, or an academic version of resignation along the lines of, it is what it is. A place that is evacuated from both theory and politics. Gina John Komarov, in the introduction to their forthcoming book, Theory from the South, make this implicit critique of Euro-American critical theory. It is a matter of observation, they write, that throughout much of the global north, there has been something of a flight from theory, a re-embrace both of methodological empiricism, think of Frederick Cooper, and born-again realism, also a return to the ethical and the theological. They go on to say that really, the point about thinking from the south is that you can reanimate theory as grounded theory, um, as engaged theory, and so on, as problem-driven theory. Um, this Komarov position is an important one because it affirms aspects of what I've been trying to say here. That notions of surface and underneath do have a political purchase within an African studies that responds to and hopes to shape the complex textures of the global present from the vantage point of the continent. On the other hand, what such a view misses, perhaps, and perhaps risks, is this idea um, uh, is, is, is that it, that it, that it underreads northern theory. This is really interesting stuff that I think is coming out about the surface and overreads theory coming from the south as the only place that's really reanimating theory. So for instance, even though dominant critical modes see criticism the way we read as a practice of freedom locating autonomy, self-reflectiveness, detachment, and liberatory potential, either in the artwork or in the critic, it might be useful to undo some of the overt practices in which, <coughs> from a number of stances on a text, we choose the ones that will count as resistance or subversive. My sense is that African literary and cultural theory could renew itself in the present by opening itself again to all the potentials made available by texts. Producing accurate accounts of surfaces may not be antithetical to critique. It may as Bruno Latour has suggested, be the best way to move past the kind of impasses created by what has become an excessive emphasis, at least in um, literary and sometimes post-colonial theory, certainly in literary conferences, um, on ideological demystification. The last section is called Scene, Surfaces, and Tableau. Now, as you can see, my own thinking on these issues is formed in parts and uncertain in others. What I'm trying to do in this early project is to understand how to frame a set of questions about the way we read now within a sort of epistemology that is properly global. And what I'd like to do at this point is to you know, put the theory aside, the kind of frames that I've tried to, to work with to some extent, and to have a look at what's going on in several public art platforms in Johannesburg in South Africa. And to take the risk in public, if you like, of not properly understanding yet what they can tell us about surfaces and underneaths and the way we read now. But I want to venture some unformed comments about them. And the aim of thinking about the, these works in this way, of course, is to read and to insist on reading Africa in theory, as right inside of key theoretical conundrums 
which include those of services and screens and affect worlds um, that I think are preoccupying us globally and which I think the Global Academy is trying to work out a relationship with. So I'm going to show you a couple of um, pictures and I'll just put one of those on. I want to talk briefly about the work of a Johannesburg artist called Mary Sibandi. Let me tell you about in a moment. And that's the first picture I want to show you. I'll just run through three of them and then I'll um, pull back to the first one. That's the second one. And this is the third one, which is just to show you the degree to which her art is making an impact on Johannesburg buildings, on the surfaces of buildings themselves. <clears throat> that's in downtown Johannesburg. So I'm going to put this one back up and I'm going to talk a little bit about what she seems to be doing. Hey, I'm running out of time, aren't I? Nathan. You're great. Yeah? Okay. All right, so Mary Sibande was born in 1982, and she's a young Johannesburg-based artist who, along with Nicholas Torbo and others, is part of a generation of artists who live and work out of the studios of August House, which is a light industrial building from the 1940s situated on the gritty eastern fringe of 21st century metropolitan Johannesburg. From this vantage point, she makes huge fiberglass and silicone casts of her own body and invents for them the name Sophie, which is a common name among South African domestic servants. Her sculpted figures are peat black and they're shiny. They wear the starched uniform of the maid the collar and apron rimmed with broderie anglaise, a 16th century Euro technique of embroidery, one still widely used in the collar and apron details of contemporary South African domestic servant, domestic worker uniforms still available at local supermarkets. And they also invoke, to be sure, the black and white French maid's outfit with its attendant erotic associations, as in the role of servitude in Saad's work. But in Sibanda's sculptures, the small standard-issue note of deference to European sensibilities escapes domestication. The sleeves of her royal blue dress are puffed, and the full wide skirt, supported by a scaffolding of undergarments, falls to the ground in a voluminous flourish that recalls the dress of a Victorian lady. Her hands and arms are sheathed in vintage black satin dress gloves, radically disrupting our associative categories so that we are unable to establish whether it is the Marquess or the maid we are encountering here. The initial scrambling effect is breathtakingly potent. Sophie's eyes are always closed as if in ecstasy and conjuring. In a 2009 work, this conjuring of getting out of oneself has everything to do with commodity culture itself. I put a spell on me. In I put a spell on me, Sophie reaches out to a Church of Zion staff archly adorned with multiple replications of the emblem of Louis Vuitton, arguably the most favored bling token of South Africa's middle class. These enormous sculptures of Sophie, they're really enormous, they're you know, massive, have been photographed and draped across some of inner city Johannesburg's largest and tallest buildings as part of a public art project that shows new art from the city. If she opened her eyes, it would be back to work, says Sibandi asserting the expressive power of the imagination, perhaps, and of generative fictions, but also the role of affect in the business of living in the aftermath of times when individuality was crushed. <clears throat> Whereas the maid is traditionally expected to disappear into the background, to become invisible, 
Sibandia's Sophie takes up the space in the room in the city and in fact becomes hyper-visible. Her skin is painted a flat, monochromatic black, so she stands out like a dark and static shadow, and this transports her into the realm of the hyper-real. There are shades of Cindy Sherman here, and in a more pronounced intertext, London-based Nigerian artist Yinka Shonibari. In viewing her enormous sculptures, now pasted on Johannesburg's buildings, we could think of Alison Light's descriptions of the hidden history of domestic service in her recent book, Mrs. Wolf and the Servants, in which she describes the messy, painful, intimate, damaging feelings of inferiority, envy, deference, and belligerence involved in domestic labor. And we could think of Marlene van Niekerk's uh, great South African book, A Heart, an epic reworking of the farm novel, which <coughs> grapples in grueling sadomasochistic detail with the relationship between Miller, a land-owning matriarch, and her maid, stroke caregiver, stroke victim, stroke dominatrix, Achard Luria, a colored woman who was, as a badly neglected child, fostered <coughs> and renamed by Miller. And we could think, too, of the perpetuation of exploitation in what is officially an era of democracy and new attention to human rights in South Africa, and how uncomfortable a topic it renders itself in the formally convened public sphere. But it is not exactly this interiority or resistance that Sibande speaks of. Both my grandmother and my great-grand, sorry, both my great-grandmother and my grandmother were maids, and my mother worked as a part-time maid, she tells us. And in a series of five installations, she pays direct homage to these women. Her mother has the bigger dress on because her dream is closer. It was her mother who broke the domestic worker cycle, becoming a hairstylist. And the last of the series is the artist herself. <coughs> Sibande reads and we read her both down and across. <coughs> and I'll make just two comments here. And you may have any more. Firstly, that her reference to consumer culture is not particularly ironic, nor in the mode of critique that cultural theorists might tend to look for, but closer to a certain unfixing and reconstructing of self through the capacity of things. Secondly, she works interestingly with skin surface. The shiny porcelain-like fiberglass and silicone, the very stuff that Vladislavish refers to as constituting the surfaces of the white city, intensifies blackness into something not really nameable and so excessive that it produces a mannequin-like celebrity figure out of her. Johannesburg public art has long been a mixture, in fact, of the fixing of a history of race and the unfixing potential of the surface effects of commodity culture. And that is only intensified in a city studded with texts and images of one kind or another in the last decade. Sibande insists that Joburg is a stage on which she can dream, but also in a manner quite typical of young Johannesburgers and quite complicated to unravel, she says this, my interest is not in looking at the negatives of being a domestic worker, specifically in current post-apartheid South Africa, but rather at the humanity and commonalities of people, despite the boxes we fit ourselves in. There's a certain rhizomatic refusal, isn't there, of going down into the deep, dark places of the past in that statement, an evacuation, a kind of political artlessness, and a productivity, perhaps, in, the, in its unexpectedness. 
begin to move towards the end by talking to you very quickly about other kinds of video installations that are coming out of this city at the moment, and then wrap up. One has everything to do <coughs> with the rise of the non-events, which focuses um, on um, a monumental undulating wave of people moving towards us. They bob and they stride and they push forward. And the only um, placard that they hold in this video still of people moving but not moving is the word stop. The one thing that this mass, this multitude in motion cannot do is stop. It's a red stop sign. Now, if stop suggests some residual political intent, it is no longer clear what it is that has to be stopped. The multitude is trapped in motion. So I want to think about, first of all, this notion of the non-event as the inscription of surface in contemporary video, in video installations um, in Johannesburg art. Um, in a second, uh, these are the video installations that won a sort of ma major art competition recently. And it's incredibly interesting how different they are from the kind of art that was being produced two years ago. Um, in one, um, in another one, people move ant-like across and back through a rough patch of the city. It's a sort of a taxi rank, so typical of post-apartheid attempts at urban regeneration and orderliness and predictability. And what you see is the camera focused um, you know, on um, taxis jostling and jabbing, and people moving around, and a road artery spurting traffic, and then it decompresses. And then people are loading water bottles into a shape that looks like a man, but it's not exactly a man. They unload them again. And the thing is that we keep straining for meaning. What are they making? Where are they taking it? You know, when is this set of maneuvers going to congeal into an artwork? And then it doesn't. And the, the point seems to be about a kind of artlessness that's being projected in these works. Okay? That sort of artlessness you found in Sibande's comments on her, on her, on her own work. Um, a sort of predilection towards repetition, the seemingly unprocessed, unfiltered random, it's open to accident, someone comes in and leaves again. A kind of literal tone as if it were made by a reporter viewing a strange culture. A critique perhaps opposed to parade, but also a letting a go of a political narrative and its place, and in its place, a city as a document, a documentary intelligence, an act of minimalist curation, an incursion into the realm of art and the real as an opportunity for thinking along unpredictable paths. I'll tell you about one more very briefly and I'm going to wrap up. And this is the installation in this art competition which I had to judge, which I was so taken by. It's a video of a mixture of retro-style dubbing and karaoke voices. And it's this. A camera holds steady and close on the face of Julius Malema, who is the populist young demagogue who, are, who is um, either delighting or terrorizing South Africans, depending on your political point of view at the moment. But the, um, and he talks, but his voice is dubbed, badly dubbed. And the actual voice we hear is that of Stuart Hall, black British theorist of race and culture. <laughs> so Malema, we know, is talking the language of an assertive black nationalism and populism. And Hall is saying that race is like a language. Its meanings are relational and not essential, that it is subject to redefinition and reappropriation. Despite its trail of blood and violence, Hall says, 
It's a signifier, an empty sign, not fixed in its inner nature. Using dubbing, substituting one voice with another, and karaoke, we resort to a junk space in which we empty Malema out and fill him up, resting the words from his mouth, turning them into objects of satire by unfixing their authority, replacing fact with fiction, fiction with fact, depending on your political sensibility, spinning simulated webs of voice, of karaoke voices. I'm going to wrap up with two last passing references and a concluding remark. Sufisa Uzobe, author of a novel called Young Blood, just came out in KwaZulu-Natal, just been shortlisted for the Sunday Times Fiction Award, said this at the time of the Writer Festival in Durban the other day. I'm in love with words, with writing, with this delusion that in this world you can still invent. It's interesting that his love of words is already matched in his mind with an inbuilt question about the capacity to invent in a world increasingly drawn to a, re a reality-based art, a reality hunger, perhaps, to use David Shields' words, and the possibility that it might not happen, at least not in the old way. It's an expression of possibility and doubt that seems very much of his time now, and I'm not sure that anyone would have said that in South Africa, setting out as a writer a couple of years ago. And Penny Siopas, South African artist, in a recent interview, the language of alterity is exhausted. It is partly in depthlessness that something of the opportunity lies for the new. Here's my concluding observation. It's very short. It's not that we lose a longing for literariness, the deepest places of the self and the world, or for a politics that can drive potent forms of change in ways we have long known. It's not that reading in all the layers that have been thought and used and understood over time has become redundant. It is that we read across many more repertoires than we used to, and that this is changing what the literary and the cultural in Africa and elsewhere around the globe can become in ways we don't often try to think about in and beyond African studies in a properly sustained way. Thank you.